0: lord we thank you this morning for the goodness of your grace and the beauty of your gospel and the horrific nature of the death of your son jesus that it was not just enough that he died but that he'd suffer and die that he sought no way around pain that he didn't even take the cup with the with the pain-relieving gall in it, and, and that he absorbed the fullness of the punishment that we deserve in the most painful way possible. That's our death. And you gave us a gift. You gave us your son who took that pain from us and for us, out of your love for us and by your grace, You have now gifted us the faith to put our trust and hope in Christ. And from that death, he goes to a grave, and from that grave, he does rise. We don't serve a dead God. We serve the one and only living God, the living Savior. And in his resurrection, we have faith. Without it, there's no faith. Without his resurrection, there's nothing. So we worship you, and we praise you, and we thank you, not just for killing your son on our behalf, but for bringing him to life so that we too could have life, a life life of victory that we live not just now today, but forever. For that, we give you our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, Paul is teaching Timothy what elements are important in corporate worship. So as we gather together to worship God as a body, for us it's Sunday mornings, um, but it's not just Sunday mornings. We corporately gather on Wednesday nights. The men corporately gather on Friday mornings. The women corporately gather on Thursday evenings. Uh, Brian's life group corporately gathers on Thursday evenings as well. Joel's life group and my life group, uh, we we gather on Friday evenings. So there's plenty of church going on. We think of church as like this Sunday morning event. Um, it's I, I love Sunday mornings. I love preaching, um, but I really love like life group. You know, I love that we're getting together as a body, talking about life, walking through the Word. Um, and in those contexts of Bible studies and life groups and things like that, there's no presentation, you know. Sunday mornings are very different. You know, like if I, I, this is, I'm presenting something to you and you're sitting here quietly and listening. That's very different than life group where we're discussing life. And so, it, so, like Bible studies and life groups and all the other things that we got going on, that's church too. And we tend to call this church And we all know that church is the body. Church is not an event, and it's not a building. It's the people. And so when the people gather, we call that church. So when the body gathers corporately, whether it's the entire local body or segments of that body gathering in smaller portions, it is very important that certain things take place, and those are the things that Paul has been talking, just started last week talking about in chapter 2, and now we'll continue to talk about, and, and so prayer in the last two verses, verses 1 and 2, were established as a must when the church gathers for worship, and not just prayer in general, but specifics, praying specifically for kings and leaders, um, praying uh supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, Uh, those are, and we talked about what those things mean, what those different words mean, and how that affects the way we pray, and what kind of prayers we should be praying, and what our disposition and attitude and heart should be when we pray, and all that stuff is important to corporate worship. But today we get to something that I would say is even more important, because without it, there's no prayer. Without it, there's no success in our prayer. In verses 3 through 6, we'll see three things. Our aim to please God, God's desire to save, and the role of Jesus. But all of that combined is Paul's way of bringing us to the importance of one thing. And that one thing is to be always exalted in the church, especially in corporate worship, And that one thing is the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. The gospel, Paul is telling us the gospel, is the most important thing in corporate worship. And this is, I got a little note to myself here, don't add, move on. I'm going to ignore it. (laughs) Because I always do this and I'm like, don't do it, Mark. It makes sense when I'm sitting in my office. It doesn't make sense now. So, I'll just say this. I have zero problem with Easter or Resurrection Sunday and celebrating Jesus' resurrection. Please understand that. This is fantastic. We do this every year. Everyone does it every year. Um, I get text messages from pastors all over the community who are like, Hallelujah! He is risen! Praise the Lord! And I'm like, Yeah! And that's true, and I don't ever want to say anything that would diminish people's desire to worship the resurrected Jesus on Easter Sunday. But here's the thing. He'll still be risen tomorrow. He was risen yesterday. He was risen last Sunday and the Sunday before that. So I have no issue with celebrating it on Easter. My issue is that we don't celebrate it enough when it's not. And so I don't have a, you know, like... In, I recognize that a majority of that weight is on me, the guy who's saying these things at the pulpit. So I understand that. But I have no problem with Easter at all. But if we have to veer from what we're normally doing to preach the resurrection and preach the gospel on Easter or on Christmas, then we've got a problem 50 weeks out of the year. So, And I don't think we have that problem in this church. And I would say the churches from the pastors that texted me this morning, they don't have that problem either, I don't believe. I think there are churches that do. And I don't want to have that problem. So that's why we preach the gospel all year round. That's why we preach on the, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the perfection of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus because we don't just wait till Easter. And I know you all believe that. I know you all agree with that and I know that you're on board, but I just had to say it. Sorry, I wasn't supposed to say it, and I told myself not to say it, but I had to say it. Verse 3, okay. Paul writes, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So that is, if you weren't here last week, you're like, what's good? Well, what he's referring to is back to verses 1 and 2, that prayer is good, that when the church gathers to, pray, or gathers to worship God corporately, it is good and it pleases God that we make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving. And it's good for you, it is good of you, and it is good to you, and it's good to the body when we pray together in the ways we discovered last week in verses 1 through 2. And what we also see there in this text, in verse 3, is this desire and this aim to please God. And that desire to please him is not an effort. This is really key. Our desire to please God is not an effort to earn his favor. If you are trying to be good so that God loves you, if you are trying to be good, if you are saying, God wants me to pray, I should pray, and then he'll love me. God wants me to uh, intercede for others and make supplications and give him thanks. He wants me to do all these things and in doing those things, I'm good with God. If I do these things, I'm good with God. And I'm fulfilling what he tells me to do, which is to please him. That's not the purpose. That's not what, ha- that's not, that's not what is happening. The desire to please God is a product. A product of Of one who has undeservedly, by God's grace, received favor already in Christ through the gospel. Our desire to please God is not to earn his favor, our desire to please God is to represent his favor. Our desire to please God is because we have favor. You can't desire to please God without his favor. Paul doesn't just, in verse 4, title God with his name, because he does say, uh, it is pleasing in the sight of God. He could just put a period there, but he adds this little caveat, this little uh, attribute about who God is to provide some clarity. So he doesn't just give us the title of his name. He also identifies his nature as our Savior. And that is important because in verse 4, Paul is going to express the heart of God to save which is why he's like he's our savior verse four let me show you how so in verse four Paul makes a significant transition and he sweetens our understanding of God as savior by supplementing his nature as savior with his nature as one who desires to save so those are two different things He is our Savior, and he's not just our Savior, but he desires to save. And Paul says in verse 4, God our Savior, end of verse 3, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. We have to veer a little bit right here because of what this verse says. We have to establish some biblical truth before addressing what verse 4 means. Some biblical truths that we find in other texts. Because this text, seemingly, just reading it at surface level, at face value, it seems like this text opposes many other texts in the Bible that I preach from this pulpit regularly. And... I can't ignore that reality, so we have to address it. And as we address that reality, we're going to see what that means to the gospel. And I think as it unfolds, it's pretty awesome. Uh, so, we have to cl- I have to clarify for you the means of salvation. Our salvation is a matter of God's election, of God's Choosing us before the foundation of the world, and in love, he predestined us before he created a single atom. We call that the doctrine of election. Now, it's a, a highly debated subject, and <laughs> if I were to start diving deep into this doctrine, it would produce some answers for you and more then it would produce answers. It would actually produce more questions that need more answers. And we would end up in this rabbit trail that goes on for weeks. So I'm going to avoid that because I'm going to trust that years of me preaching this doctrine at this pulpit will sufficiently take care of all of those questions in time. Instead, I'm going to make a ton of assumptions that are doctrinally true in my mind that I believe scripture teaches. I'm going to say those things and if you've got questions, send me an email. So I'll I'll give a little bit of a defense because there's a little bit of defense for the doctrine of election in this text that is required to understand How a God who elects people for salvation, who chooses people before the foundation of the world, before Jacob and Esau were even born. Romans 9, God says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Oh yeah, because Esau was a bad guy. Nope, God says, before either of them did anything good or bad. So, how does the doctrine of election, God choosing whom he will save before the foundation of the world, How can that be true if this text says that God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? Well, there are 31, at least, at least, 31 explicitly clear. Now, that's a very important caveat. 31 explicitly clear references in the New Testament to believers being elect, chosen, or predestined. Before the foundation of the world. And that's just the New Testament. And that's just the ones that don't need explanation. There's more that require cross-references and understanding and contextual explanation and what, so on and so forth. Uh, and so I personally, my understanding of this text is I would actually include 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 as one of the texts that defends the sovereignty of God's elective purposes. In my personal experience in teaching this doctrine of election, the most common rebuttal I hear is this verse. God desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of him. And along with 2 Peter 3.9, which says a very similar thing. So these two texts say essentially the same thing. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now these verses appear to counter the doctrine of election, but that can't be true if Scripture teaches us about God's sovereign election in at least, at least 162 texts. These aren't just like little verses where it's like, God saves, God chose you. I'm talking explanatory texts, long texts, big chunks, entire chapters explaining these doctrines. 162 texts at least in Scripture. Those are just, that 162 is just the ones I personally have written down. So, if we have 162 verses that teach us one thing, and these two verses that seemingly teach us, or that seemingly oppose those 162 verses, which is more likely? That we misunderstand 162 verses, or we misunderstand these two verses? We know that scripture can't oppose itself. We know that God can't contradict himself. That doesn't make sense. If God contradicted himself, that would be an untruth, a non-truth. And God is truth. He can have no falsehood in him. Scripture teaches us that. And everything about him is true. Scripture teaches us that in 1 John. So in him is all perfection and all rightness and all truth. And so there can be no contradiction in God. So which is more likely, that we misunderstand 162 verses or we misunderstand two verses? Now, we do need to understand this, though. You can't just say, well, there's 162 verses that say he does, say, uh, he is, he does elect and there's two that say he doesn't. So just because of pure, the pure uh, imbalance, therefore this one's true. We would call that a presupposition. And you cannot approach the text of the Bible with your presuppositions. You can't say, well, I already know this is true. So if I already know this is true, then this verse must mean that truth. That's that's bringing your understanding, your presuppositions, your interpretation into the text. We call that eisegesis. Bad, 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 bad. Don't do that. Good is what we call exegesis, where we look at the text And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he unfolds the reality of the text and reveals to us its truth. And if that truth tells you that your previous presupposition is wrong, then you got some change to live through. And you have to change what you believe because that's what it says. And we obey God's word. So I'm not going to say, well, there's 162 verses that say this and there's only two verses that say that. So, ha! Like, that's not an appropriate way. So what we need to do is go into 1 Timothy 2.4 and say... What does it mean? What did Paul mean when he wrote it? And what did the original recipients mean when they heard it? A text can never mean what it never meant before to its original readers and author. I'm going to say that again. I want you to hear this. This is an important part of interpreting Scripture and knowing what God's Word means because the whole purpose of studying and reading the Bible is to not know what it says, but to know what it means. A text can never mean what it never meant before to its original readers An author. Believe it or not, I'm quoting a rap song. (laughs) If you want to look at it, it's called Context by the rap artist Flame. (laughs) It's a song I heard like 20 years ago, and it's awesome. So I shared it with a couple of people last week. Um, Good song. Anyways, text can never mean what it never meant before to its original readers and author. So what does this text mean? We need to understand what it means in this larger context of Scripture to glean the true meaning so that we can genuinely understand God's heart. We want to know what God's heart really is in this text. So the Greek word for desires in verse 4 is not the same word that is used throughout Scripture to communicate to us God's will. So the word will and the word desire are not the same word. One is, represents what God wants, and what represents what God does. And those may not be the same thing. We find plenty of evidence of that throughout Scripture. I do not have time to go through all those examples, but I have gone through them before, and I will go through more some other time. But there is plenty of biblical exposition that communicates to us that there is something God wants, but that He does not do what He wants. He does something else, and we call that His will. And sometimes in Scripture... We find the word will instead of the word desire. And so the word will can represent two things. It can represent your want. It is my will that I go to Hawaii one day. Will I? Probably not. (laughs) It represents what we want and what we desire and what we wish And there are times in Scripture where that word wish is coming. God wishes this or wishes that. So the word will can represent God's desires or can represent what God actually does or will actually do. Meaning, God has two wills. One of his wills is his sovereign will which is immovable and unstoppable by humankind, and in his sovereign will, his sovereign will will always be accomplished. It cannot be stopped. Jesus prayed in the garden, "Um, you know that sovereign will that can't be stopped, Father? I would like that cup to pass. And what did Jesus do? Because he's perfect and holy and righteous and faithful to his Father. He said, I came to do not my will, but his will. So what did he say? Nonetheless, not my will be done, but your will. Even Jesus couldn't stop the sovereign will of God the Father, that the Son must die. So there are things that God does that we cannot influence, whether whether well, the weather. I was going to say, whether it rains or not, the weather. so the weather, we can't change that. Like that's just one of the things you can't, like when, when you have a baby, is it going to be a boy or a girl? You don't get to choose that. I know people try to finagle their way into maybe having a boy or a girl, but you can't, you can't change it. What, what your child looks like, you have no control over that. The fact that you're born is God's sovereign will. You have no control over that. You can't change that. So that's his sovereign will. And boy, would I like to keep going, talking about that, but I'm not. His other will is what we call his moral will or his will of command. So we have his sovereign will and his moral will. Or what we would call his will of decree or his will of command. And his will of command is just that. It's an expression of his desires. And it's an expression of God's heart, of what he wants and wishes and desires. And it includes his moral parameters or what we call his commands. Now that is something we can change. Because God gives us plenty of commands. see this in like 1 Thessalonians 4. It is the will of God that you abstain from. And then he goes on to explain what things he wants us to. It's a command. It is the will of God for you that. Meaning it is the desire of God that you don't do this thing. Well, people do that thing. People disobey that all the time if we call that God's will, then you're telling me we can break God's will, well, we can break his will of command, but we cannot break his sovereign will. We cannot change his sovereign will, but we can either agree with or disagree with or obey or disobey his moral will or his will of command. So there is a distinction between God's desire or his will of desire and his will of decree. And his sovereign will, listen, his sovereign will must be transcend his desires and what this verse communicates to us is God's heart it communicates to us the heart of a God who loves to save and why does God love to save because it magnifies his grace and it exalts his glory and it makes him look well like a savior and a hero And that causes the people whom he saves to praise him and give him the very thing he knows he deserves. Glory and praise and worship and our lives. He loves to save. Because it makes him look great in our eyes. And he gets what he deserves, our praise and glory. And he doesn't just do it for himself, he does it for you. Why? Because he loves you. And in loving you, that is part of the magnification of his glory. That's the beauty of his heart to save. That's the beauty of Paul saying, God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved. God hates sin. Hates sin. With the fullness of his being, he hates sin. And therefore, he also hates the consequences, the eternal consequences of sin. He hates that people hate him. And he hates that they spend eternity hating him in a lake of fire. He hates that. Well, if he hates it, then why does he he allow it? Because he's got a different will than just his desire. And I'll explain why he does it. But he does hate the never-ending suffering from the pleasures of his presence where people will continue to hate him forever. God's God does not desire that in his heart. Because, he's, because when you look at the Bible, what is he like? He's, he's quick to save. When, when Israel is unbelievably sinful, repetitively sinful, over and over and over again to the point where God's like, all right, I've had enough, you're all going to die. And Moses steps in, he's like, okay, okay, hold on, Lord. Please don't. And what is God like? Okay, I'll be gracious. When in reality, it would be the most fair thing ever. If the moment you were conceived into your sinful flesh, in the womb, he kills you and sends you to hell. That would be fair. That would be fair. And you're thinking, well, I didn't do anything wrong yet. You were born into sinful nature. All of us are. Everybody needs salvation in Christ. That's the problem. is we're born into sinful flesh. And if we died immediately, that would be fair. So when Israel disobeys God, when we disobey God, it would be fair if he just killed us and sent us to hell. It would be fair if he intercedes the moment Israel disobeys him and sends them all to hell and disperses his people. That would be fair. But God doesn't do that. He's patient and patient and patient and patient. How long does God endure with patience the sin of Israel before he finally looks at the entire nation and goes, you know what, this generation doesn't get to go into the promised land. In fact, Moses, the guy who's supposed to be the most holy, other than Jesus, like the most holy, maybe Abraham, but Moses, the, whole, he's the guy who, he wrote God's law. When people talk about the law, they don't call it God's law, they call it Moses' law. He's one of the most holy men ever, if not for Christ himself. So God looks at Moses and goes, Moses, even you don't get to go into the promised land because you sinned against me. That's how much, that's how serious God takes sin. And so, it would be fair if God just crushed Israel immediately. And then, if that were true, then we wouldn't have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the rest of the Old Testament. Because by the time Abraham gives his wife to another king, God would be like, are you kidding me? Die, and Israel ends. Like that, that would be not only fair, but it would make sense. It really would make sense. And and what does God do instead? He waits and he waits and he waits patiently with grace, out of his love for his people, out of his kindness. And in Romans chapter 2 says that, the, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? God is giving Israel 40 years plus to repent. And after the 40 years in the desert, he gives them more time to repent and more. They continue to disobey him. And he's patient, patient, patient. And what does he do while well, he's patient? He makes a promise. A promise. There'll be a day when you don't have to try to figure this out on your own. There'll be a day when you're not left by yourself. There'll be a day when the law is not your guidance. There'll be a day when I do something different, when I do something unique, when I send a man who is my son to take your place, to give you something you don't have now, my spirit, who will then operate for you because you can't do it on your own. And so what does God do? He makes these promises as he patiently waits. And, and, and what, what, do, what does most of the world think about God? This strong, strict, mean, old man with white hair and a white gown standing up on a throne looking down on you and going, You're bad, and you're bad, and you're bad, and I'm a good God. You're to do what I say because that's who I am. And I say so, and I made you do what I say. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is full of grace and love and kindness, patiently waiting, enduring as you sin against him regularly. What love is that? What grace is that? What a beautiful gospel. So what does God do? He is patient. And then the moment anybody goes, uh, God, you know how I've been totally disobedient to you my entire life I've rejected you I have hated you I've despised you I've been your enemy I do not follow you I did not care about you I have hated you I have told people and myself I don't believe you exist you should have killed me it would have been totally fair if you killed me but God will you save me yes oh yes I would love to save you oh I will save you right now so fast that's the heart of God that is what God will God will you kill me for sinning against you I'll be patient 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 save me yes as fast as I can Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 but God being rich in mercy that's who he is so rich in mercy it just flows out of him and the moment you're like "Oh uh, God he's like I got you yes I will save you. That's the kind of God we're talking about. That's a God who loves to save. And that is what Paul is getting at in this text. The heart of God. God, to manifest his glory. To manifest his glory. I want you to hear this statement. I think it's an important statement. God, to manifest his glory in his wrath. So to magnify the glory of his grace to his elect, chose to endure, Romans 9.22, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Meaning, God fulfills the purposes of his sovereign will over the wants of his will of desire. Ultimately, God's choices are determined by his sovereign will and his eternal purposes, not his desires. But it is because we know about his heart and those desires that draws us to him. And if anybody hears about this God and his desire to save and his willingness to save immediately, why would you not want that? It's your only hope. This life is but a vapor. You blink and it's gone. I'm already 40. That happened really fast. <laughs> I was in high school like yesterday. Okay, Some of you are 60. Some of you are 75. You're probably like, you don't even know, Mark. You wait till the next 30 years go by. You don't even even know that happened. Anyone over 70, 80, 90, whatever, you could probably confess the same thing. Like, man, life, it just goes so fast. And then you get near the end, you start realizing there are more yesterdays than there are tomorrows. You start thinking about the end. Start thinking about what is really happening after this. Is there really a God? Is what I believe really true? Or maybe at that age, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, it's just more sure than ever you know what's happening next. But man, this is just, this is just a blink of an eye. Here today and gone tomorrow. And you know what? You know what we know about tomorrow? It's not promised. You have right now. You, you are not promised another breath, let alone tomorrow. Tomorrow. You have right now to determine if you believe this gospel. Because if you wait till the next breath, you might not have it. And if you say, Well, I thought you said God was patient. Well, if you're over one second old, He is patient because you deserve to die a second ago. If you're 40, that's 40 years of God's insane patience. Don't wait. Now, the evidence of the fact that God chooses his sovereign will over his desires is revealed to us in the reality that there are human beings who go to hell. The Bible is abundantly clear about that. It's one of the most preached about subjects by Jesus himself. So, this doctrine almost seems kind of out of place for this text a little bit. Like just Paul randomly just inserted the debate about God's two wills right into the list of what the church should do when they're supposed to worship. But verse 5 brings verse 4 into context so we can understand why verse 4 is inserted here. So, in verse 5, Paul says, and this is one of my favorite Bible verses For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus. God loved that phrase. The man, Christ Jesus, he's the man. He's the only man who fills this role. He's it. He's the only one. He's the only one who fits the qualification of mediator. So Paul takes us from considering God's desire to save all people so to reveal to us God's sovereign means to save his people. And that means of our salvation is found in only one way: Jesus. Amen. Whom is the mediator between God and men. Scripture well establishes that we are enemies of God because our sin opposes his holiness. We know that. Romans 5:10 kind of encapsulates these two realities: that we are enemies of God, and yet he provides salvation through his mediator, his son Jesus. It says in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we're enemies and we're reconciled by Christ. That is what Paul means when he says, mediator. He's not talking about the advocacy of Jesus, that he is right now, like 1 John chapter 2, when when John says, if you sin, he says, don't sin. But if you sin, you have this advocate, Christ, who's advocating on your behalf, Christ the righteous. He's advocating his righteousness on your behalf when you sin. That advocacy is not Paul's point here. Paul's point here is mediation. He's saying that Jesus is the one who mediates the relationship between God and man. The context is God's desire to save. And the means of that salvation is that we must have someone mediate our reconciliation with God. We need help even entering the presence of God to receive salvation. And that help comes only from Jesus. As Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me so what's paul doing here like what what is the purpose what is paul's purpose in bringing up jesus's role as mediator between god and mankind he is establishing the gospel or more specifically jesus whom is the gospel as the paramount praise in the church. So the gospel, or Christ, is the paramount of praise in the church. That's what he's getting at. Paul is teaching us how the church is meant to worship when gathered corporately, and nothing matters more to the worship of God's people than for us to recognize what God has done to make us his people. He has saved us through Christ. So immediately upon the mention of Christ Jesus... At the mention of his name, he is instantly in this text, elevated as the one to whom our attention and our desires and our praises and our worship belong. Like he takes over the text. The moment his name's mentioned, we're talking about sovereignty and two wills, and all of a sudden, Christ's name shows up, and we're like, "Whoa, Our attention!" Is, is transfixed from whatever we're thinking about, whatever doctrines, to Christ. And what that does is it validates God's heart to save because Jesus is proof that God loves to save. And we know that Jesus has taken over the attention of the reader of this text because Paul goes on in verse 6 to elaborate on the work of Christ that secured our salvation. He says in verse 6, Speaking of Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For sin, blood is required. God demands blood, God demands death. Well, that's not very gracious. That's not very loving. A lifetime of patience in your sin, that's pretty gracious. To give you a way out of your sin, oh that's pretty gracious. That's a whole lot of mercy. To offer you salvation despite your despite being his enemy, that's pretty merciful. But we are sinners at the core. It is our nature And that sinful nature opposes the perfect holiness of the Almighty God who made you. And the requirement for death, for even one sin, or not even a sin, but just the fact that you have a sinful nature, the requirement of death shows us just how holy He is. That any sin, even just your sin nature as it exists, is such an affront and an offense to the nature of God because it is so he is so holy that his holy is holiness is infinite in nature meaning We do not have enough time in an entire lifetime to describe the holiness of God or to look upon his holiness or to appreciate his holiness or to magnify his holiness or to study his holiness or to preach his holiness or to speak about his holiness or to explore his holiness. It doesn't matter how much time you have, it will never be tapped because he is infinitely holy. Which is the beauty of eternal life is we get to spend forever Every day, every moment, being blown away by the beauty of his holiness moment by moment. in the word glory, that's what that word glory means. The word glory is a, is a word we use to describe the manifestation of his holiness. God is going to reveal glory over and over and over again forever, for eternity, infinitely, eternally. That's why eternal life is eternal, because he is infinite. And if we're going to genuinely appreciate him for who he is, it's going to take eternity To dig into God and enjoy his holiness. And every moment, more holiness, more holiness, and holiness manifested is glory. And that's what eternal life is, is spending forever in the magnificent glory of God and just standing there. I I don't know what we're going to be doing. Are we going to be building houses and making things and riding boats on a lake? I don't know what we're going to be doing, but I know we're going to be completely satisfied in his glory as he reveals it moment by moment. His holiness is incomprehensible. And our sin nature is such an offense to that amazingly perfect holiness that He requires death and blood. Someone has to pay for sins. And it's either going to be you or Jesus. So Jesus paid the ransom with his own life. And the ransom is your death. That's the requirement. That's what he's holding. Somebody's got to die for these sins. And Jesus died for them. He paid the ransom. He died your death. He took what you deserve. And the only opposition to that truth can be arrogance. To stand before this God. To stand before this gospel. To listen to this truth that you are going to hell without Christ? How can you bear another moment without him? He loves you. You don't know what love is. You don't know what love is. I am telling you, you don't know what love is. You've never felt it. You've never tasted it. I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you have kids. You don't know love if you don't know Christ. It will change your life. And not just your life, but your eternity. How can you not want this? The only thing that stops you is arrogance. I don't need you, I don't believe in you. I'm good, I'll figure things out on my own. Let me figure out life before I come to you. There is no tomorrow, there is no moment but this moment to believe. That is the command that God gives every human being on earth. And the only people who go to hell are those who say no to that command. Jesus took that death that you deserve to die. All you need to do is believe it. So what does all this mean? What's Paul's big point? Just give me a little side note here. There's this word all in here. Paid the ransom for all. (laughs) Based on what I was just teaching you earlier, that kinda needs to be addressed, I'm gonna skip it, okay? For the sake of time so we can get to some other things. But Jesus says he came to pay the ransom for many. And then he says many are called but few are chosen. So we need to put that word into context too. I'm not gonna spend time doing that now but I just want you to be aware of it so you don't think that I'm being uh, <clears throat> answering some questions that the text has and not others. So we're gonna to get to this question, what is Paul's big point here? His point is, as the church gathers to worship, Jesus and his gospel of salvation is meant to be the central focus of his body. We cannot worship properly if we don't know the gospel properly or if we don't know how the gospel came to fruition or if we do not understand God's sovereign will and salvation, both the timing, because he says Jesus came at the proper time, the timing of his salvation and, the, and, and everything that God does surrounding his, his gospel, that is what we call sound doctrine. And, and sound doctrine was the, the emphasis of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy. That's Paul's big push in his whole book. Teach sound doctrine, teach sound doctrine. There's heretics here, false teachers preaching a false gospel. Teach sound doctrine, preach the truth. And what Paul's saying is there is no sound doctrine without the gospel, though. All sound doctrine comes from the gospel. So the gospel is the most fundamental aspect to the worship of the church because without it, you cannot be the church. Because of it, we are the church. And because of it, we worship God. So we ought to elevate the thing that is the reason we have Christ. And that is to elevate Christ and his work, his life, his death, his resurrection, So that's what Paul's really getting at. If Jesus isn't the focus of your corporate worship, then what on earth are you doing? Because there are a gazillion social clubs in our society that you could freely join and hang out with people and do service projects for the community and spend time together and eat under the guise of... We just like people. We just like serving. We just like hanging out. We just like to be part of an organization. We like to be part of something that has a purpose. Well, you don't have to be part of the church to do that. So what makes us different than some other organization? The difference? We're not an organization. What are we? An organism. We're the body of our Savior Christ. We are the body of Jesus. That's what makes us different. That our purpose for gathering together is not just to hang out and eat food. Man, do we love doing that stuff? Yeah. But we hang out and we get together to be in the word, to know God, to exalt Christ, to learn, to grow, to serve, to love, to, to, to be like Jesus, to know him more. That's, that's why we gather. That's the difference. So the, the gospel has to be at the center of our worship. And let me just say this, you can be saved and misunderstand doctrines, right? Obviously, because no one in this room is perfectly doctrinally sound, nobody, myself included, there is no such thing in a human being other than Jesus. There is no such thing as perfect doctrine. We might have certain doctrines perfectly, but we don't have all doctrines perfectly. That's impossible. Let me ask you, when's Jesus coming back? Do you know? Well, if you had perfect doctrine, you would know. But guess what the Bible tells us? No one knows. So anytime anyone tells me, hey, I know, and I'm serious, people have told me to my face, I know when Jesus is coming back. I'm like, no, you don't. (laughs) Like Jesus said, no one knows, himself included in Matthew 24. So nobody knows. So there are things we don't know. Is he going to come back before the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation? And if we believe he comes at any time, either before and during or after the tribulation, then we would call ourselves premillennials because we believe in a thousand-year literal, literal reign on earth. Well, some people don't believe that. Some people are amillennium. They think that the thousand-year reign on earth is metaphorical and we're in it now. And who knows? I don't know. I honestly don't know how to answer that question. I can tell you what I think, but am I right? I don't know. It's so like, what's the answer to that question? Well, I can tell you this. Some of my favorite theologians all disagree on this subject. Somebody's wrong. If they disagree, one of those guys is wrong. And that doesn't mean they're suddenly unsaved. It's just, we all just, you know aren't perfect in our doctrinal understanding but here's the purpose we need to be growing in doctrine so we learn and the more we learn the more we love Jesus and so the point is you can be saved and not know sound doctrine but as the caveat there you that's the reason we are to always be growing and always be in the word and always be gathering and always be praying and always be worshiping and always be reading and always be studying and always be gathered and always be at life groups and always go to bible studies and always get involved in these things because we want to know him more so that's that's our driving motivation so you can be saved and misunderstand many doctrines but here's something you cannot be saved and misunderstand the gospel you cannot be saved and say Jesus isn't God you cannot be saved and say Jesus isn't man You cannot be saved and say, Jesus didn't die for my sins. You can't be saved and say, Jesus didn't rise from the grave. You can't be saved and say, I don't have sin. You can't be saved and say, I don't need Christ. You cannot be saved and not confess the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are certain things that must be believed In order to be saved, we might not get all the doctrines right, but to worship God properly, we have to get the gospel right. That's why we have communion, so we don't forget it. So we are conceived into sin. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. That makes sense? Right? It's from our sinful nature. We're sinners. In nature, at our conception, it's from that sinful nature that we sin. And that nature makes us immediate enemies of God, and our only way to be at peace with God is the mediation of Christ and for Jesus to step in and fix the problem. And the problem is our sin. So how does he do it? Well, our sin is a debt that we must pay God, and God says that the payment is your life, and you will die It will be paid in blood and it will be paid in eternal death unless Jesus steps in and pays that ransom for you, which he did by dying on the cross for your sins. And that is a gift to be received only by faith in him or believing that truth. And the reason he is qualified for that role to pay for our sins is not only because he is God, it is because as fully human and in the fullness of his humanity, he never sinned. So his sacrifice is the only one that will do because he is the only one worthy and by his perfection to substitute for our sinfulness with his perfect righteousness. So he dies a death that we deserve to die. He dies for us. Yay, he died for us! But man, worshiping a dead God is kind of lame. In fact, worshiping a dead God is what everyone who's not a Christian does. Does. Every other religion in the world has a dead God. Every other religious organization or faith or confession or whatever. They have some sort of God that doesn't answer them. And they all have a God who didn't do two things that our God did. Every world religion, including Satan. So you could say, well, I'm an agnostic or an atheist. I don't have a religion well, Jesus says in John 8, yeah, you do, and the father of your religion is Satan. So, everybody worships something, even if it's self. And to worship self is to be manipulated by Satan. Because he's a liar and always has been. And he lies to you and says, you don't need God, you've got yourself. And the Bible tells us that you are blind to the truth. And only the gospel will open your eyes. Only the knowledge of Christ will open your eyes and remove the blinders. So there are two things that our God does that no other false God, no other world religion, and no other thing does. Number one, every world religion requires that you die for your God. And ours is so awesome because God says, I will die for you. That is number two. We are the only world faith, religion, whatever you want to say. I don't even call it a religion because it's not a religion. But we're the only faith, the only source of truth, the only declaration that has grace. 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 Jesus is the only God that's proclaimed in this world that offers his grace. So that actually is number one. Number two, we serve the only living God. He's the only one who not only died for you, but came back to life rose from the grave. Why did he rise from the grave? A couple of reasons, and I could go on and on about this, but I'm just going to give you two really quick ones. Number one, him rising from the grave is God the Father's way of saying... Everything I've said about him, everything he said about himself, everything the apostles say, everything going on, everything in the Old Testament, everything up to the New Testament, everything about the Messiah, everything about Jesus, all the way up to the point of his death, even the three days in the grave, have been fully vindicated and validated when he rises from the grave. That's God's way of saying, approved, that's the gospel. That's God saying, that's the gospel, complete, done, finished. He finishes it on the cross, and God validates it in his resurrection. So, we celebrate his resurrection. Not just because it gives us life, but because it gives us victory. And not just for eternity, but he gives us victory Today, Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's why we sang that song today. I was like, we have to sing this song, man. We're going to sit there and we're going we're to stand up and we're going to declare with all of our voices, with all of our might, with all of our power, that we are more than conquerors through him. Like Romans 8.37 says. Or as Paul says in Romans 6.5, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we put our faith. we celebrate the resurrection because it's god's validation of the savior and we're encouraged with this truth that this victory is our victory this is the best part is that we get that victory his victory over sin is our victory over the sin that he earned for us and what that means is it means that in christ alone we can finally do what god has been wanting all this time listen all of humanity, all of history, the entire world, from the very beginning, God had one really objective right from the start. And, and finally, in Christ, God gets to fulfill that objective. Because the moment people sinned, that objective was ruined. Not ruined because that was part of God's plan, absolutely. But from our perspective, ruined. And God fixes the problem in Christ so what is the thing that God wanted all this time? In Christ alone and through his resurrection, we can finally be who we were meant to be. Through in Christ and through his resurrection, we can finally fulfill God's great desire for us that we please him. And what is it that pleases him? What is the thing that he find that we finally get to do? Because of Christ, the thing that God's been waiting for thousands of years to fulfill and accomplish as he patiently, 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 patiently waited for people to do this, but they never did. What is it? Not sin. Or, as 1 John says, practice righteousness. Or do righteousness. Like... be holy that 's it that we finally get to do that. we finally don 't have to sin that 's what the resurrection does is when Jesus rises from the grave, he leaves the, your sins, he bore your sins on the cross, buried with those sins, and in the grave, your sins died, He killed them, but he had to carry them to the grave. He had to, to kill them. He had to sacrifice himself to take the sins there. Someone had to carry the sins to the grave. And he's the only one qualified to do it because he's the only one who's perfect and can bear the weight of all your sins. Someone had to take it. Someone had to go to the grave with those sins and only he qualified. And when he's there, he also is the only one because he's perfect and because he's God and because he says, I laid down my life on my own accord and I raised it up on my own accord. As he is buried in the grave, he's the only one who's qualified to come out of the grave but leave your sins there. And that life that he rises into of perfection is the life he puts in you. And now... You get to live like Him. Finally, we don't have to sin. Finally, we can please the Lord. Finally, we get eternal life. Finally, there's an answer to my questions. Finally, I have hope.